you know, now that you're hearing that there's some underwater stuff, maybe the title Fire Tides starts to make a little more sense. See, I thought it was just so a story awesome. about toothless eating a Tide Pod, but... Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's way better. I'm just going to steal that. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dragon Academy Dropouts. We're so honored to have a special guest with us this week. He's made his mark all over the How to Train Your Dragon franchise. He's written graphic novels from dragons to troll hunters, and his own original graphic novel scoop is out now. Please give a warm welcome to Richard Hamilton. Hi, Richard. Hi, guys. Hi, Dropout. Thank you. I'm the one who's uh, honored. I'm a fan of the podcast, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. Max. (laughs) Is it my turn now? Okay. It is your turn. Every time. (laughs) All right. So I I have the honor of asking the very first question, which is. (laughs) Okay. So you have worked on. Okay. Background. I was going through Amazon. This is not even in the thing. I was going through Amazon trying to find everything you did because I want to get the full Richard Hamilton collection. And I just kept finding like more and more stuff that you've done right so you've done dragons obviously you've done a ton of stuff on troll hunters and so here's my question finally how did you start getting involved in these and and what was it like uh being involved for the first time writing at dreamworks well i guess the the long answer is that i've always been uh a fan of of writing in general and comic books in particular and um i kind of i never i never made that a secret i always wore my fandom on my sleeve and um prior to the time uh, prior to when i started working at dreamworks i actually had my own comic book self publishing business and so i did that for a couple of years and it was fun they were stories i came up with um but it was um what happened was my wife got pregnant with our first son and it was time to get a real job essentially <laughs> And my resume sucked because it just said like comic books and, you know, film school grad on it. It was virtually unhirable. Uh, Tell me about it. Yeah, right. Um, And this this was also, you know, over a decade ago. And, you know, comic books, I don't think, had the cachet then that they do now. So it looked bad. It looked really bad. But, um, you know, I figured I could start temping and get my foot in the door somewhere that way and, you know, make some income and hopefully keep writing on the side. And one of the first temp gigs I got was um, at DreamWorks Animation, and it was just being a receptionist, answering phones. Um, And then I didn't screw that up too badly, so they had me back for a (laughs) second gig, and and that went pretty well. And then I think the third time they had me back, um, I was temping for a week on How to Turn Your Dragon 1. And I was covering for one of the assistants who was going on vacation. He was an assistant to um, a couple of the, the, the associate producer and a couple other folks there. And so it was a real crash course in, in film production at an animation studio, but also it was this amazing exposure, How to Train Dragon. It was the first time I'd ever heard about Cressida's book series. It was the first time I heard that they were making a movie of it. And then I you know, would see they had artwork all around and they would have you know, headshots of Jay Baruchel and Jonah Hill and all these guys who were really starting to make a splash in a lot of the Judd Apatow movies at the time. And I was a big fan of those. So I thought this is going to be awesome. It's got these really funny actors, this idea of Vikings and dragons. It just was like perfect for my comic book brain. So 
I was always hopeful that, um, you know, one day I'd get to do more with it because I was just scheduled for a week that time. And then um, the next gig I had after that, um, I was an assistant to the guy who was the chief creative officer at the time at DreamWorks. His name was Bill Damashke. And I wound up working for him. It, you know, kind of made it official. And I was one of his assistants for like three and a half years. And I never made it a secret that I was into writing and into comic books and all that. And then um, when an opportunity came up to be Dean's assistant on Dragon 2 and to be the script coordinator, um, Bill put me up for it. And I went and interviewed with Dean. And uh, it was the best, I still joke with Dean about this, it was the best interview I've ever been on in my life because I really <laughs> didn't have to do any talking. Dean just pitched me the plot of Dragon 2 and he's like, so do you want to work on this movie? And in a weird way, it felt like I was interviewing him. And I was like, yes, absolutely. And, you know, it came up during our, our conversation that I was a comic book guy and I like to write. And Dean thought that was great. And I sort of had this hope um, those many years ago that maybe one day Dean and I would get to do some Dragon Comics together. And, and here we are. So it was a lot of years of just kind of working my way up at the studio, doing a little bit of writing here and there until I was seen not as an assistant anymore, but as a writer. Um, and then just always, anytime there was an opportunity to write on dragons, whether it was to write like a dragon bio for the website or, um, you know, to write an app or anything, you know, marketing copy, whatever it was, I would always throw my hat in the ring. And I just over time kind of got associated with the dragon franchise. Um, so then a couple years later when Dark Horse Comics and DreamWorks Animation reached a deal to do, um, dragon graphic novels, I, I found out about it and I knew they really wanted Dean to be involved, but that Dean was getting pretty busy, you know, starting, you know, wrapping up Dragon 2 and starting up on Dragon 3. And so I said, uh, you know, I volunteered and said, Hey, I've, I've done, you know, I've made my own comics before I know how to write them. You know, maybe I can, Dean and I can work together, um, you know, we can break the story. I can do the heavy lifting of the writing it and then everyone's happy. And I get to do these dragon comics with Dean, which had been my dream for a couple of years by that point. So, um, it, it all worked out. It, it wasn't, it didn't quite work out like clockwork like that. I mean, there are a lot of stops and starts along the way, but I guess that's the, um, that's the, the kind of the highlights of it. That's awesome. That's really awesome. <laughs> Thanks. And it, you know, then, so the troll hunters thing came in when I was still working for Bill Damaschke, chief creative officer, he was the guy who brought Guillermo del Toro to DreamWorks Animation. And when Guillermo came over, the first thing he had was this very rough treatment for Troll Hunters, which was going to be a feature film. And Bill, at this point, knew that I was, you know, geeky comic book guy and sci-fi and <laughs> fantasy guy. And he's like, here, read this. I think you'll love it. And he was totally right. And I got to meet Guillermo through Bill and got to go to Guillermo's man cave where he has all his you know, collection of <laughs> wow. props from his films. Like, it was amazing. I was living the dream. And oh um, when I found out that and, and, you know, I had by this point had kind of a different job at DreamWorks and franchise. And I was closely involved with Trollhunters that way. And then when I found out that Dark Horse wanted to do Trollhunters comics, I just made myself it was kind of made a nuisance of myself and said, I really want to do these. I really want to do these. And um, I think it was because things went well enough with the dragon comics that they just said, fine, you can write them to shut me up. So that's how I got involved with the, the troll hunters comics. And then those led to uh, a troll hunters um, book, kind of like a guidebook I did for um, inside editions. And then that led to these um, six troll hunters novels I've written for uh, Simon and Schuster. 
So it all kind of like, much like Dragon Vine, these opportunities kind of spread if you um, are just sort of paying attention to them and, and staying on top of them. So that's the very long answer to your short question, Max. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. And and I think also yeah. sort of inspiring that you you started by answering phones. And Absolutely. now you you have what I'm assuming is a pretty much encyclopedic knowledge of dragons after doing all of this dragon stuff. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, sadly, I don't know <laughs> if it's a good thing. Or not. No, I, I, it really is. It really is a good thing. I mean, I think, um, you know, when, when people, you know, like people who graduated from the same college or grad school I did, if, if we, you know, meet for coffee and they ask for like, you know, career tips or something, that's one thing I always tell them is like, you know, make yourself an expert on something because then you really become indispensable. And, um, I mean, you guys are, are close fans of the franchise and you're pretty, I think, savvy to, you know, entertainment and the way it works. Like, you know, to make these movies is a full-time job and then some, and then to make TV shows is a full-time job and then some. But if you can be that utility person that knows, you know, everything about a franchise backward and forward, um, pretty soon people will come to you like your one-stop shopping and, and it's, you know, it makes their lives easier because you can kind of help them out. And it also brings you into the process. So it's, it's like a win-win, but I mean, it doesn't even have to be with dragons. It really could be any field out there. If you make yourself an expert on it and you are very clear about your passion for that subject and, and not like in a pushy way, but just in a really enthusiastic and helpful way, um, chances are it's it's going to work out and, and you can you can pursue it as a career yeah that's awesome so you talked a little bit about your long-term process but how about when you're when you're writing a specific graphic novel like the dragon vine or the serpent's air um could you walk us through that process and how long it takes to to make a graphic novel yeah, absolutely. Um, it varies, but um, I guess looking at the dragon graphic novels, um, what happens there is that I, you know, um, Dark Horse will sort of have ideas of what they, they want and need the graphic novels to do. And DreamWorks will will also have ideas from like a franchise standpoint of like, you know, Dean is going to be touching these story points in the third movie, so don't don't interfere with those, but maybe set them up. And, you know, there's, you kind of pretty soon all the stakeholders chime in and you get a sense of kind of generally what, what sort of sandbox you have to play in narratively. And, um, you know, then I, you know, I guess in the case of Serpent's Air, I tried to come up with what I thought would be kind of like a, a cool, big, almost like a blockbuster kind of start to the graphic novel series and something that, if you were a fan of dragons, it would feel like you just picked up where Dragon 2 left off. But if you're one of those people out there who, for whatever reason, has never seen the films or watched the show or anything else, you could pick it up and, and get more or less a sense of like the characters, the rules of the world, the stakes, that sort of thing. So that was the thinking behind Serpents there. And then what I would do is um, meet with uh, Dean at DreamWorks and um, Kate Spencer, who's one of the producer on the, the Dragon movies and on, on the franchise for a really long time, really helped make all that stuff happen. And so I would just pitch out ideas to Dean. Dean would give me his reactions and would offer things that were, frankly, way better than what I'd thought of. And then I would take all that and go back and try and fashion an outline and then share that with Dean. And then once we got his approval, that would go to Dark Horse and to DreamWorks. 
and then, um, you know, get their approvals on it. And then once we have all those approvals, then we go to script. Um, on a normal, like on an average, you know, Marvel or DC or image comic book, you will probably get a minimum of like four to five panels on a regular page. Every now and then you do like a big splash page, which is just like one panel that takes up the whole page or a two page spread, which is one image mm -hmm. that takes up, you know, both pages. Um, the dragon comics are a little different and the troll hunters comics are a little different because they're printed at like a smaller format. They're printed at more of like a, kind of like a YA sort of digest size. They're a little smaller than the traditional comic. They really want you to try and limit it to like three panels a page, um, which is, um, it's a challenge. It's an interesting challenge. Um, it, it forces you to be really specific about, what are the bare essential images you need to tell a story and which are the most impactful. And it also forces you to be really economical with your dialogue because you don't want to cover up the beautiful artwork with a bunch of word balloons when the art is so strong that it can kind of convey all that stuff anyway without any words. So um, anyway, it was a little bit of a learning curve for me to write a script where it's like three panels a page. And we have occasional splash pages. There's a couple of pages where there's, extra panel hidden in there, but more or less three panels a page. Um, and then that goes to the artist. And um, it's, you know, the, I mean, the, the artist is like the not-so-secret weapon in, in any comic book, the art team. And, um, you know, I think we've gotten pretty lucky on Dragons and on Troll Hunters. Um, in the case of Doug Wheatley, who illustrated Serpent Air and um, our free comic book day story, which is reprinted as the first 10 pages in Dragonvine. Um, you know, he, I had seen his work on another Dark Horse book. I thought it was amazing. I then found out he was a huge fan of the Dragons franchise and really wanted to do it. But he was um, finishing up this other title. So we had to wait for a few months, but then we got him. And I feel like he was really worth the wait. But that's one of the reasons Serpent's Air came out a little later than was initially announced. Um, and then it's the, uh, by the way, I'm, I could talk about this for hours, so feel free to interrupt me or tell <laughs> me to okay. shut up. Or no, we're, we're or good with that. We just want to hear. <laughs> All right. This is so now we go into um, actual like comic book production. So the artist takes the out uh, the uh, script, sorry, and will do thumbnails, which are like very rough sketches of um, what the page is going to look like. In Doug Wheatley's case, his thumbnails, you could print them just as they are, and they're, they're gorgeous. It looks better than a lot of people's finished pencils. And then um, DreamWorks has, to, has the opportunity to comment on those, and they have a whole team, a franchise team and a character art team, and they look through and they make sure that... Um, all the characters, you know, look on model and that, you know, there's nothing offensive hidden in the artwork, which has never been the case with these <laughs> books, but they're on the lookout for all that stuff. You'd be surprised. Um, and, uh, you know, then once you get the approvals on that, then Doug would go in and do finished pencils, which are really tight. And then again, everyone looks at that and sees if there's anything that needs to be adjusted. Um, you know, that it, specifically to dragons, it's a really difficult property to illustrate. Um, you know, stuff that works in CG animation when you translate it to 2D, it is sometimes unsuccessful. And so Doug went through kind of a process, but very quickly figured out, um, and he got a lot of help from POV, um, Pierre Olivier Vincent, the production designer on, on Dragons 2 and 3, and he's the art director on Dragon 1. 
POV is a big comic fan too. He did the cover for Serpent Bear and he kind of got on the phone with Doug and they talked about process. And then once they had that, Doug figured out like, this is how you draw the Viking characters and this is how you draw the dragon characters to make them work on the page. And once he cracked that, it was artistically, I'd say, pretty smooth sailing from there. Um, you know, the other thing that challenges that are specific to dragons is that um, it's an ensemble story. There's a lot of characters. So it was a learning curve for me to figure out how many characters I could have on the page before it became too much of a burden for the artist. Like, you know, watching Race to the Edge and watching the movies, your immediate instinct when you're writing these stories is you want to hiccup to set up something important and then, like, tough nut or snot out to poke their head in and say something obnoxious and then Astrid to be like, oh, get lost or shove them out of frame, whatever it is. But quickly you start adding all these characters and it gets to be more of a bear to draw. And then on top of that, the dragons, the scale of the dragons relative to the scale of the humans, it's difficult to fit all of them into a panel or into a page at any given time, which was not anything that you ever necessarily have to worry about in film or in TV. But when you're illustrating for comics, it's a challenge that becomes very apparent very quickly. So that was kind of something new that we learned along the way, too. Um, and all through this Dark Horse editorial, um, Randy Stradley and Freddie Miller, they're guiding us through us and pointing this out to to all of us. So um, it was kind of a cool collaboration. And then um, once the pencils are approved, Doug inked them in other books. Your inker is a different artist than your penciler, and they'll ink them. That goes through a round of approvals, then it gets colored. That goes through a round of approvals. It goes to lettering. That goes through a round of approvals. And then you put the whole thing together. And, um, you know, it's it's a grind to put out a monthly comic for something like Serpent Bear and even for Dragonvine because it's a really beloved franchise at DreamWorks and it's really closely protected and guarded. And there's all these other, you know, approvals along the way. That's why it takes a while for these books to come out. So that that's kind of the the rough version of how these books are made. And then kind of on the business side of it, you know, after the book is made, um, Dark Horse has to sell it into booksellers. Like comic shops only need about three months notice before they start carrying it. But Barnes and Noble and Amazon and places like that, they need up to a year to review this product and see if it's something that they want to carry and how they can market it. And so that also adds to kind of longer um, production timeline until the book hits shelves. So, that's that that is um making a licensed DreamWorks Star Horse comic book one oh one. Wow, that is crazy. Not complicated at all. No, no, <laughs> yeah. super simple. Well yeah. It's it is super complicated, but the um what I love in particular about comics is it's a collaborative medium. I mean, there's some people who are super talented and can write and illustrate all by themselves. I'm not one of them, and so I love working with artists. I love working with editors. Um, you know, if uh, I happen to know the people at DreamWorks and they're great, but you know, I like working with studios and hearing their takes of, you know, how they see the characters and how they view them and what they think is fair representations of them. So um, it's you know sometimes it's frustrating because you really want this thing to come out yesterday, but then on the other hand, you're working with all these really talented people and all working towards the same goal. So it's you know for me ultimately a really positive, fun team activity that makes sense you you touched on this oh sorry go ahead i was just gonna say i think it's definitely worth the wait oh thanks yeah this dragon vine took a while um but um 
yeah, I'm I'm happy with the way that it came out, and I was really happy to hear, um, you know, the discussion you guys had. I guess it would have been maybe two episodes ago when you were reviewing it. Um, you know, some of the stuff about Bayana and his background and the tribe, and you know, what did Hiccup mean by kind of opening up Burke's borders? Um, I. I have some answers to those questions. They're not necessarily the right answers, but for me as an artist, that I, the fact that you guys were talking about it and it was, it was leading to such, you know, kind of considered conversation, um, that felt like a victory to me. So I'm, I'm that, that's the stuff that I'm the happiest about with Dragonvine. So Bayana, can you tell us a bit about the, the, the backstory of, of him and the tribe in Dragonvine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of the meta backstory is when Dean was writing How to Train Your Dragon 2 and came up with the character of Drago Bloodvist and gave Stoic a line that he was, you know, a stranger from a faraway land or something like that. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. But what it really did was it was kind of a throwaway line. But I, I think for me and I think Dean's intent was to, to say that, you know, to really... Like, you know, Hiccup has that line, you know, now that we're on the backs of our dragons, the world is smaller. Again, I'm paraphrasing poorly, but, you know, that line and the idea that Drago is from a place that was not in the archipelago kind of, you know, led to this this chain of thought of like, okay, if, if we accept that dragons are real and that they travel beyond the archipelago, what does that do to other societies and cultures out there? And, you know, if you look closely at Drago's army in, in Dragon 2, some of them are sort of um, of like a Slavic background. Some are Asiatic. Some are kind of like, um, you know, Laplanders and Nordic. And so you kind of got the sense that Drago sailed around the world assembling this anti-Dragon army. And, um, I, you know, I thought that was a really kind of compelling idea. And it was something that we kind of started to explore a little bit in this um, How to Train Your Dragon digital storybook app that DreamWorks released a couple of years ago. It was called DreamWorks Press Dragons. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we only were able to release sort of one um, one installment of it before DreamWorks went through some some kind of big changes in 2015. But we were kind of building towards that story. And um, the comics seemed like a great place to kind of pursue that story because, um, you know, one, it seemed like a neat narrative. And two, just given what's going on in the world right now, you know, it also seemed like an interesting conversation to have through um, through dragons. Um, so that that's kind of like the meta background on it. Bayana was, um, I really wanted to add some diversity specifically to the How to Train Your Dragon team. And I know Dean did too. And Race to the Edge was kind of doing really interesting stuff with that, with like the um, the um, you know the the Dragon Maidens and and you know, the um, you know all those guys and the uh, Defenders of the Wing, but you know we kind of wanted to put somebody actually on the team, and so then you know just started thinking about all the different personalities that are already in the Dragon Riders, you know Hiccup and Astrid and the twins and so on, and then kind of what is what is like a personality that could go into that mix that would kind of create some new dynamics. And that was really where Bayana was born. And so, whereas the dragon riders are, you know, kind of like some of, you know, hiccups, a dreamer, the twins are goof offs, you know, um, Astrid is, is sort of like very, 
you know, very determined and, you know, um, having somebody and, you know, kind of very, very passionate, having somebody who had like a very clear focus and a very clear view of things seemed like an interesting addition to the group. And that is why, um, you know, we chose to make him an archer. You got to have good eyesight for that. And then, you know, Bayana's name is, um, you know, roughly translates to kind of like clear vision and, and clear sight. So that, that's where he came from. And then um, there was a, a, a character artist who works, or maybe, I don't know if she's still at DreamWorks. Her name is Mariko Yamashin, and she did the designs on Bayana. And we tried to pull a lot of reference from, from you know, current African tribes um, and not, not culturally appropriate anything, but, you know, kind of find the things that are most visually distinctive. And then... Um, kind of apply the same exaggerated filter to those that POV does to Viking culture in the dragon films, if that makes any sense. So you want to kind of find like these key distinctive stylistic elements and then really play them up. And, and so that's, that's kind of the background on where his character came from, you know, as for the tribe, um, you know, somebody else asked about this on Twitter and I, I kind of gave the answer, but it's pretty much what I said, you know, Drago, in my mind, Drago went from village to village trying to amass his army. Um, some people agreed because they believed with him. Some people joined just because they were in fear of Drago and his wilderbeast. And other people refused. And, you know, as we saw from Stoic's flashback in Dragon 2, Drago does not take too kindly to rejection. He, he reacts pretty violently to it. And so in my mind, any tribes that would refuse to join his cause, he would burn their villages to the ground. And that's what happened with Bayana's tribe. And they were, you know, peaceful. They were farmers. They really weren't equipped to fight this this well-armed um, military force of Drago's. And so they fled. And as Drago kept working his way northward to the archipelago and to, um, you know, Volca's island, um, the the far the farmers kind of had to keep staying one step ahead of him. And just as they got settled on a new island, here comes Drago's Armada. So they move on to the next island, the next island. And ultimately, they wound up at the one with the uh, dragon vine. And it seems so inhospitable to anyone um, that that they stayed there. And then they made the mistake of chasing off the silk spanners. And that really threw off the native ecology. And then the dragon vine got super out of hand. So that's their background. They don't have a name yet, the tribe, um, and I would gladly throw it open to Dragon fans. I don't know if you dropouts want to run a contest or something like that, but um, you know, if we can, uh, we'll come up with some some parameters for it and, and come up with like a cool, compelling name. Um, you know, something a la the Berserkers or the Hooligans or whatever, and um, you know, maybe the winner can you know get some signed comics from me and Dean or something like that. Yeah, that sounds that like a cool awesome. idea. Yeah, there's got to be somebody out there who has the cultural knowledge to come up with something better than what I could do. So <laughs> there's a lot of creative yeah, well, people out there. There, there are, and I mean, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I see that in the fan art and in the comments and stuff. And um, you know, I think like really good franchises like Dragons, like Star Wars. After a while, they really take on a life of their own and, you know, the fans get involved and they start adding to the mythos. And I think that's a really exciting thing. I, I certainly like it. I, I think Dean likes it, too. So, um, you know, definitely if anyone has any inspired ideas, let's hear them. 
I don't well, right now, that's but my I'll favorite try. thing about Star Trek. So this is like no Christmas for me here. We'll yeah, throw that, it open to the masses. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. awesome that they have such a detailed backstory. And I would honestly just like to hear a story about them and and all of their experiences with Drago because that's super cool. Um, Which I think related uh, to what you related to what you said. Um, you know, once people hear more about their background, maybe from this interview, I feel like the fandom's going to just kind of take this and run, which is so fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You know, it's it, like I said, you've got really limited real estate in the comics and you kind of have to pick and choose what, you know, what you can include and, and what you have to cut. And I, I want to say that at some point an early draft of the script had you know some sort of extended flashback sequence sequence where you would you know see drawn in panels their their kind of diaspora from you know where they started and how they wound up on Dragonline Island and I think we just cut it for space because you know ultimately you know the Hatrian Dragon you know for me it's the relationship story between Hiccup and Toothless and Astrid and Stormfly and all that and you know if you got to make tough calls it should always be in the service of you know furthering and deepening those relationships so um but yeah it's great that we have podcasts like yours because then we can get into all this uh, backstory yeah definitely um oh and by the way uh the question about the tribe is based on a submission by prince Najobu, and the question about the graphic novel process is based on a question by toothy fan and httyd lover 101 so Thank you, all of you. Cool questions. Great um, questions. Yeah. Thank you. So I have one more question, and then I'll pass it over to... I forget who's next. Um, but so in Dragonvine, uh, you know, what people comment on a lot is, uh, you know, all these cool new moments with Eret in particular, but also, you know, the twins and others. Uh, how do you incorporate these moments of character growth and development into your storytelling uh, when you're writing one of these graphic novels? And this is a question by uh, Zena Firesum. Uh, great question. Um, you know, it's actually not a question of incorporating character growth into the story. It's molding the story around the character growth, by which I mean, you know, the, the, the characters are the most important things in here, and they're really what keep it, make it a specific adventure versus like any other adventure where you could plug in you know, let's say Batman or Justice League or something in place of the Dragon Riders. So to the extent that you can make it specifically grounded in Eric's character or Astrid's or Hiccup's, um, all the story, all the action beats that follow are kind of seen through that lens, and it, it just makes it like authentically dragons. And it's the same if you're writing Troll Hunters or anything else. You, you have to start with character first and then figure out the story from there. So in the case of Dragonvine, Eric was, you know, I could have sworn Dean had said at one point, but he's since told me he never said this. So maybe I just dreamed it. But I thought at one point that Dean said that Eric was kind of like our Han Solo character. And that really resonated with me. So I was like, well, I like Eric and Dragon 2. I think Kit Harrington's got an awesome voice. I wanted more. And so I was like, all right, well, let's play up Eric in... Um, in Dragonvine, because, you know, in, in Serpent's Air, he got a little bit of screen time, but not a lot. Um, so I just tried to give him these heroic moments, and not for the sake of, like, standing and looking heroic, but, you know, this is a guy who was a trapper, 
who lived out in the wild probably his whole life. And my, you know, I mean, we know his dad is Eric, father of Eric. So he's kind of like part of the family business. It's all he's known. So to me, that means he's like a survivalist. And the idea of throwing him into this very dangerous environment and pairing him with the absolute worst partners, rough nut and tough nut, <laughs> like, how is this guy going to handle the pressure? And, um, you know, I think Eric kind of keeps his cool all the way throughout. I mean, kind of almost loses it with the twins a little bit, but I don't think any of us could blame him. And sure. then, you know, kind of throwing in um, Bayana into the mix, who is somebody who's familiar with the layout, is also a survivalist, but at that at this point in the story is kind of like diametrically opposed to Eric. Eric is trying to get literally to get to the root of the problem, and Bayana, under his his tribe's orders, is trying to cover it up. So that was like that. That's kind of the thinking behind that dynamic and that storyline. Um, and then the the dragon vine itself um, this is kind of dumb, but. So when I was working on How to Train Your Dragon 2, um, you know, Dean was always really supportive of my writing. And um, yeah, I had this champion and Bill and then eventually Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the head of DreamWorks, liked some of the notes that I'd written on, on Dragon 2. And so all this anyway led to me getting a chance to maybe write for Race to the Edge, although it wasn't even called Race to the Edge yet. They didn't even know if they were going to do that season. So they asked me to write a spec script, um, you know, like Dragon TV episode. So I wrote one called Dragon Vine, and it was about a Dragon Vine infestation on Burke. And it was kind of a story that focused on Rough Nut and Tough Nut. Um, and it was um, it was good enough that it then got me the chance to write on Race to the Edge when that you know finally came to fruition. So drag so like they're like, well, there's no way we can actually do Dragon Vine the TV show. It's way too you know, expensive and, and technically complex to have these living, moving vines, you know, constantly undulating in the background. Oh, gosh. But yeah. this, right. But this was something that I thought, like, well, it's perfect for comics because, I mean, it's a pain for the artist to have to draw all this stuff, but that's one of the beauties of comic books. You really don't have to worry about budget at all. And mm -hmm. you can go for the biggest visual spectacle you want. So the dragon vines and dragon vine having the forever wings and serpent's air. Um, spoiler alert, sorry, I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, it's been out for a couple of years now, I'm assuming everyone's <laughs> read it, but, um, anyway, that, that, that was the thinking behind all that. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Mark. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And, okay. uh, for the record, I love the idea of Eret as Han Solo and I too wish I had a dream about Dean telling me this because that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. And that's awesome that it started sort of as a TV episode. Um, yeah. And, and we, um, so we were, we were again going through crawling the internet of all things, Richard Hamilton. And we saw that you wrote, um, or, or were one of the main writers on, um, what is the name of the episode? Total Nightmare. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. which now looking back on it has, <laughs> Oh God. Uh, a, a, did you know about the hidden world? Is this was this a tease, or or did you uh, kind yeah. of come up with this? You did. No, I I did, um, because uh, that was one of the things that Dean had mentioned way back when during Dragon Two when I was working on it, 
And he had already had the idea of how you, where the hidden world is and how you enter it and what, what awaits you there. And, um, he had all that figured out. So, yeah. That's awesome. That's super cool. Yeah. It's cool to see little bits of, of, uh, the films and, and TV shows mixing together. That's little dragon eggs along the way. Yeah. Well, who doesn't love dragon eggs and babies, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Okay. I think it's my questions now. Um, I just wanted to say first that it's really awesome to hear, you know, all of the, the research and the care and the passion that you guys have when you, when you create these comics and everything, because I don't think some people realize that, you know, most of the people who work on these comics and TV shows, they are just as much of fans of the franchise as us. So I just think that it's really awesome to to see all that passion come out in awesome graphic novels like these. Um, well, thank so, you. So, yeah, no, thank you. Um, so my question, I'm going to kind of combine two questions here. Uh, so was sure. there a favorite scene or moment that stood out to you when you were writing Dragonvine? Or was there a message from the story that you found you connected with the most? Or what was kind of your favorite moment of the You know, I want to say it was something really deep and emotional between like Eret and Bayana, but it's probably, it's not about getting the butt webs in his face. I would say (laughs) that's a particular highlight, not just for this graphic novel, but for my entire writing career. Um, You you know what? I'll I'll answer your question seriously now. So Dragon Vine, like this graphic novel has, I think I mentioned the first 10 pages are a reprint of the free comic book day story that we did. I think back in 2016, it even predates Serpent Air. Um, and so those are the pages that are illustrated by Doug Wheatley. Um, my favorite moment in there is probably the Astrid flashback um, where she meets with stoic. They kind of have a, a conversation. I think it takes place right at the start of dragon two after Pickup and Toothless have taken off and before the dragon races at the beginning. And um, I just, you know, I thought it was a nice moment between Hiccup and Stoic. We don't see a ton of those, um, at least not not in that, that vibe. And I just thought the art was particularly beautiful. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was kind of a lot of people had been sort of clamoring and asking, like, why is an Astrid chief? Shouldn't she be chief? And I thought it was, you know, a way, and, and they're totally valid um, requests. Um, I thought it was a way to, you know, sort of pay tribute to that and acknowledge it and not necessarily answer it definitively one way or the other, but to at least, you know, start to scratch the surface on it. Um, and then in, in Dragon Vine itself, um, I really like... Um, well, in terms of like an action beat, I really like when Eret and the twins and Bayana find a way to kind of blow up the floor and fall into this cavern, and then they see the um, the Titan Wing hideous stippleback skeleton. Just thought that was kind of like a that was like a visual I'd been carrying around for a really long time. So it was mm. personally, selfishly, very gratifying for me to see it illustrated. And I think Francisco did a great job in that sequence. Um, but in, in terms of like kind of the, the message or the theme behind it, um, you know, the idea of Hiccup getting to the point where he opens up Burke's shores um, is a direct setup to Dragon 3 and how we see Burke at the start of Dragon 3. 
But it was also, um, at the time of writing this, the Syrian refugee crisis was like really in the headlines. And so it was very present and, and front of mind for me. And I just, you know, was, you know, sort of thinking about the kind of inherent sadness and unfairness of that situation. And, you know, if if I was a young idealistic chief like Hiccup, who only had the best of intentions and wasn't really concerned with the practical application of these ideas, what, you know, what would he do? What would I do in that situation? And so then it became about not just opening it up for, for you know, refugees like Bayana's tribe, because they are refugees, but, you know, basically to all dragons out there that need sanctuary, you know, any living thing out there that needs sanctuary. So that that was the thing that, you know, for me was kind of the, the theme that I latched on to. Awesome. And I guess that kind of leads into another uh, question I have here, which uh, was submitted by um, an anonymous user uh, who it's asked... Been. <laughs> um, <laughs> they asked, how does the serpent's air and dragon vine lead into the events in the hidden world? And I know you talked a little bit uh, just now about you know, Hiccup opening up his borders and that leading directly into the the third movie. Is there any other kind of themes or, um, you know, things that we should be paying attention to for the third film in this comic or even in The Serpent's Air or just in general? This question is totally from Dean. I can tell just by the way it's worded. Um, I, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so... <laughs> So the the opening up Burke's borders is a very direct um, lead in to Hidden World. Um, Hiccup um, losing his regular flight suit and switching to his Han Solo jacket is also in a way a lead in because the idea is that him taking off his regular flight suit is kind of forcing him to look at it anew and maybe start to come up with the snazzy designs that we see in the trailer for the third movie. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're there are a couple other things. I mean, really the whole idea, and I think Dean and I kind of, we try to be on the record about this right when the graphic novels got um, first announced. And that was that if you see any Easter eggs um, or dragon eggs in these graphic novels for the third movie, they're going to be more of kind of like, um, you know, spiritual or thematic, not spiritual, like thematic or, or character based Easter eggs and less about, you know, if you look really closely in the background of panel three on page 27, you're going to see the bad guy for Dragon 3. It's going to be his first appearance. It, it was never going to be, it was never meant to be anything like that. It was really my, kind of my remit in all this was, we know where Hiccup is at the end of Dragon 2, because I'm, you know, Dean shared the story with Dragon 3. We know where Hiccup is at the start of that. And how in the graphic novels can we get him from like a rookie chief to the chief that he is when we see him at the start of Dragon 3. And, you know, roughly a year's worth of time has elapsed in between those two. And so really, like, kind of the lead-ins are pushing Hiccup to this place of being a more experienced chief. Because, you know, I mean, it it might be easy to forget when, when Hiccup inherits the mantle of chief, he's totally inexperienced. Like, you know, Stoic raised him right and put a good head on his shoulders, but it's not like Hiccup ever sat with him in council meetings or went to the great gathering of chieftains. He was far more interested in, in going off and exploring the world with Toothless, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, totally fine and a very teenager thing to do. Um, but then now, because of what happens in Dragon 2, he's thrust in the position of, oh my God, I'm chief. 
you know, and, and so where, where do you go? And so that, that was kind of like the idea behind Serpent's Air is there's this distress call. It's literally his first day on the job. Burke is a shambles. There's wilderbeast ice everywhere still. And there's a distress call and Hiccup's immediate reaction is, let me get on Toothless and go fly out and, and do something else instead of take care of the problems at home. And by the end of Serpent's Air, after he meets the, the king on the other island of Penthon, sees how hands-off he was and how laissez-faire and, and look what happened to that village, he has this newfound sense of responsibility and commitment to his people. He's always loved Burke and always loved the people there, but I don't think ever really understood what it meant to lead them to be their representative and their advocate. And so I, I thought that was a really key piece of learning that he needed to have before we get to the place we see him in Dragon 3. And then similarly in here um, is kind of um, in, in Dragon Vine is a notion of empathy. And, um, you know, the things that work for Burke and work for the other tribes in the archipelago don't necessarily work for the rest of the world. And, um, you know, to, you, you know, it's okay to go and help people, but it also is important to listen to them and hear their side of things and, and, you know, grow from it that way too. So it was just trying to give him a little more maturity and, and, and a little more, um, experience. And yeah, you know, we're, we're definitely trying to include some other things. My hope is that one day we can actually publish the fire tides because I think that has more direct Easter eggy things for the, um, for the hidden world. Um, at this point, I think even if we started tomorrow, we wouldn't be able to get the book out in time for the hidden world, but you know, who knows, maybe we can do it after the fact and sort of retroactively speak to all these things. And, um, you know, if that ever happens, we can do this again on a, on a future edition of your show. Um, yeah, sure. or even if they decide not to do the fire tides, we'll, we'll give it enough time after dragon three comes out and, and come back on here and, and we can do a, like a radio play version of it. Or I'll just I'll For just describe sure. the story to you guys if you want. With dramatic reading, I would <laughs> be interested. In yeah, that. absolutely. <laughs> Can we all play characters? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I call Astrid. Just... Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna be toothless. That's me. <laughs> I feel like yeah. Max should just play all of the characters. And we'll just, just let oh, it happen. No. <laughs> so you've talked recently about the fire tides a little bit on Twitter. Without getting too yeah. spoilery, is there anything that you can share with the listeners about what they can expect if we were lucky enough to have the graphic novel come out? Um, yeah, I mean, what did I say on Twitter? Well, um, it's definitely, it's got this really, I think it's kind of like a cool thing that happens in the beginning that really grounds a lot of the story in Astrid's point of view. Um, a lot, uh, I love Hiccup. Um, I mean, we all do, but, you know, the movies and even the graphic novels tend to start with him saying, this is Burke, or in the start of Dragonvine, this is bad, you know? And, and so it's all kind of, and there's narration in the movies, and it's from him, and I think even in the first season of, of you know, the, the, sh the TV show, there was hiccup narration and they kind of did away with it. But um, I really wanted to see things from Astrid's point of view. So that, that is something that we would definitely explore in the fire tides. Um, there is this kind of an Easter egg, I guess, although nobody, I don't think anyone realized it was at the time. And the serpent there, as the gang is flying and sailing over to Nepenthe, um, there is a giant tidal class dragon that hiccup and fish legs see, and they don't know what it is. And uh, that is the Fathom Fin Drag. 
and that is a dragon that I really hope we get to use in um, in the in the fire tides. Um, he's uh, you know I guess he's you know a, a leviathan, a titan class dragon, or you know a, a, a leviathan title class dragon. So he's a underwater titan dragon. And the idea with the fathom fin is that it's kind of like a submarine dragon, and um, his he's peaceful and his jaws are big enough that say Hiccup and Toothless could sit inside them, and the dragon, the fathom fin, could take them underwater. And he's got a gullet, kind of like a pelican, and when he expands it, it becomes translucent, so it almost becomes like a glass bottom boat. And if you're riding inside this dragon, you can look through it like it's a glass wall, and you can see underwater. And um, the Fathom Fin Dragon would take them um, to see some kind of cool, maybe some sunken Viking Atlantis cities um, under the archipelago. And that would motivate um, some new lessons for Hiccup as a chief as well. So um, that's the hope with that story. And that's, you know, now that you're hearing that there's some underwater stuff, maybe the title Fire Tides starts to make a little more sense. Yeah. Bit. See, I thought it was just so a story awesome. about Toothless eating a Tide Pod, but yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's way better. I'm just gonna steal that. You can I take love... it. I don't think anyone else wants to hear it, though. <laughs> oh, and uh, we were gonna. This one was gonna be kind of jam packed, but we we're also gonna have some Balta flashbacks to show what she was up to oh, yes. uh, between when she leaves, when it's, when she's taken away from Burke, and when she returns in Dragon Two, and Dean has some amazing, amazing ideas of what she was up to in that time. And I would love to try and do them justice in a comic because there's some some pretty far out visuals. So um That yeah, sounds incredible. That, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully. I think um, you know, I don't it's ultimately a decision between um Dark Horse Comics and I guess NBC Universal Brand Management, which now kind of oversees all the, the DreamWorks franchises after they bought DreamWorks Animation a couple of years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe if enough Dragon fans are vocal enough and tweet at Dark Horse and our editors and stuff like that and, and show that there's an audience for it, maybe we can get at least one more graphic novel out there. Yeah, definitely. That was going to be my next question. And we should. I was going to say, we got to phrase this very carefully because we don't want to incite a riot. Um, but what's the best way for fans to make it known to Dark Horse that, you know, we would want well, the graphic novel to come out? They are, you know, Dark Horse is very active on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter. You can find them. You can, you know, find our, our editors on there. You can find some of the artists. I'm on there. Dean's on there. And, um, you know, I think just try and, and spread the word, um, you know, that these, first of all, that these graphic novels are out there because I think Dark Horse would appreciate anything that helps boost the sales. The, the books are doing well. Uh, you know, um, Dragon Vine is like in the top 100 of graphic novels that came out in August, which isn't too shabby. There's a lot of great graphic novels that come out. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it, it, you know, made a, uh, made a standing in there. So that's pretty cool. And, you know, I think anything that, helps those numbers rise up, uh, you know, as much as we as fans just want to hear more and more and see more and more about these characters, you know, comics are a business and the publishers need to make money and pay the artists. And, you know, that, that all makes sense. So I think coming from a place of supporting the book and supporting Dark Horse and thanking them for all the great work they've done so far, and then just gently reminding them that, hey, there's a legion of 
Dragon fans out here, and we want to see more and and learn more. And you know, we're, we're willing to support any you know future you know graphic novels or single issues that come out, something like that. Uh, couldn't hurt to try, right? Yeah, we'll definitely help with um, you know spreading spreading the word to the people who listen to us. I mean, it's it's well, it'd be way better in a respectful yes. way. Yeah, <laughs> make it known that we we would like to see it because I, for one, would love to see the Valka flashbacks. That's something that I've always really wanted to see, whether it be in movies or TV show or comics. So I that's really exciting to me. So I really hope that we get to see that soon. Great, same here. Well, like I said, if not, I'll come back and then. Um... Max can now act out young Valka. <laughs> I'll do my best, but yes. you know, yeah. <laughs> please, please. I mean, not that I wouldn't want that to happen, but please, you guys, I don't want to be young Valka. <laughs> if you want to hear Max be young Valka, <laughs> I'm sure one of us can do it. Um, speaking of supporting graphic novels, um, we want to talk about Scoop a little bit because um, well, we you. read it and we loved it. So, oh, well, oh my thank gosh, you. so much. Before we kind of, oh, wow. you know fangirl a little bit um can you tell our listeners who maybe haven't purchased it or you know seen it around um what it's about and what made you want to write the story yes absolutely and thank you for bringing up scoop because this is a story that's been very near and dear to my heart for like almost 20 years um the the real quick elevator pitch on it is that it's veronica mars meets x-files or stranger things and it's about sophie cooper who is a 14 year old um girl living in Miami, Florida, my hometown. She's Cuban-American like I am, you know, half Cuban. Um, And um, she leads a pretty normal life, except that her dad has been accused of like a massive crime, kind of like a Bernie Madoff level of embezzlement, or it would be more more recent, Paul Manafort level of embezzlement. And um, he's on house arrest, has the ankle monitor, the full thing. And he hasn't gone to trial yet, but everyone is convinced, and the media has totally painted him out to be guilty of sin. Everyone thinks this guy did it, except his daughter, Sophie. And Sophie figures that, well, since the media has made my dad out to look like a bad guy, I want to use the media to exonerate him, clear his name. And so she gets an internship at a local news station in Miami. But unfortunately for Sophie, this news station is not like CNN at all. It is the worst TV news station you could ever imagine. They are super amateur hour. They show up late to all the news stories. They get all the facts wrong, the names wrong, their cameras don't work. Their news chopper has been repossessed. They can't afford a Doppler (laughs) weather system. They suck. It's awful. Their their name is WMIA7. And every, that's short for Miami, but everyone calls them W Missing in Action 7 because they are just completely out of touch. But it's an internship, and she does it, and she starts to learn the ropes about the news media, and, and kind of one of their more seasoned reporters takes her under the wing. But because she's, she's an intern, she's basically fetching coffee and doing all these menial tasks, including changing the paper in the fax machine. And as she does this, she starts the, the news station every day, gets these crazy faxes with insane handwriting all over the page, all in the margins. Talking about ridiculous stuff, time travel, alligator med, UFOs, every sci-fi conspiracy in the book. But what she also sees mentioned in these faxes is the name of the bank that has accused her dad of this massive crime. And so she goes to investigate it, finds out that all this sci-fi supernatural stuff is true. 
And is she, if she can expose that to the world, if she can prove that there is this giant sci-fi conspiracy in South Florida, she can um, then clear her dad's name and everything goes back to normal. And so that is kind of the main story behind Scoop. And Scoop, the name is, her name is Sophie Cooper. And when she starts working at the um, news station, she gets a Twitter handle. It's the first letter of her first name and the first four letters of her last name, S. Coop. So that that was the like not so short elevator pitch. That's the elevator <laughs> pitch. If we're like in that tower in Dubai, that's 160 floors. We've got like 15 minutes till. Um, and then I think you asked where the story came from. Yeah. Um, like I said, I was born and raised in Miami. Um, and when I was in college, I got an internship at CNN Miami, their local news desk. And my first day on the job, no joke, was the day that um, Johnny Versace, the fashion designer, was murdered in front of his home in South Beach. They just did um, a show on FX about it, just won a bunch of assassination of Johnny Versace. So I was there. So I I showed up to my internship that first day like an idiot in the summer in Miami wearing a suit and tie, trying to look impressive. (laughs) And then the news editor, um, all of a sudden, it was just like out of movies, all the phones lit up. Everyone's answering them. Oh my God, there's been a murder. It's high profile. Go send the news van down now. And I was the only intern on duty. And like, thank God they said, go, go with them, go learn. So I get in the news van, I drive down, we go there. And it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I don't mean to make light of it. It was very tragic. This poor man was murdered, but, you know, we were there at a crime scene with like, the, you know, the body was still there under a sheet. There was blood. There was the police tape. There were crowds of gawkers. And basically, that whole summer in my life was following that, that news story and the, his death and then the, um, the manhunt for Andrew Cunanan, who, you know, was the, the one who was responsible for killing him and so many others, and then ultimately took his own life. So, sorry, I know it's getting a little dark for a, a How to Train Dragon podcast, but um, that oh, it's was okay. kind of the, um, that, that was sort of the background of it. And, and you know, I, I uh, when I was an intern, I did have to change the paper and the fax machine, and we would get these crazy faxes from this person, like clockwork, every day talking about all this stuff and I would answer the phones and we get calls from people in Australia who said they saw UFOs over the outback and they called them photon craft and they had unbelievable video that we had to see. And, you know, it was all, that stuff was all chicanery. It was all, you know, nonsense, but, you know, I guess the aspiring writer in me started to wonder, well, what if that was true? And so it was kind of based on, on those experiences and also the fact that I'm in a massive Veronica Mars fan. Um, that I guess I just kind of conflated it all in my head. And that's sort of where the story of Scoop came from. I was going to ask you where the paranormal aspect of it came from. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it was, um, personal interest. No, definitely. It was those, those faxes, the weird calls. And then, um, I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Florida Everglades. Um, they're beautiful. Um, but if you go at night, um, there's like no streetlights out there. You know, it's dark and on a, on a full moon, you can see really clearly and you can see the stars. But on other nights, it's incredibly dark, like if there's clouds in the sky and it does have like a little bit of an ominous vibe in it. Um, and, you know, the, the story also kind of delves a little bit into some of the local lore of like the Native American tribes and because the their reservation is in the Everglades. So it starts to develop a little into their, um, you know, their supernatural their concepts of the supernatural and then also Miami's like a real cultural melting pot. So, you know, Santeria and voodoo and all those sort of different conceptions of the supernatural. It just to me seemed like kind of a cool setting for, for like a sci-fi 
kind of story for um, you know, for like a YA audience. So uh, yeah, absolutely. It sounds like we need to take a podcast road trip down there and see it firsthand, huh, guys? I'm in. I'm down for a cryptid. You know, as long oh, as yeah. there's no uh, alligator man, then then I'm fine. Oh, that's the only reason I said I'd go. If there's no alligator man, then why are we? You going? guys know I like my cryptids, so I'm in. The alligatoids are incredibly friendly, and they speak Spanish. So um, if you know just basic Spanish, you'll be fine. Perfect. I'm because in most of guys. our <laughs> because most of our listeners are primarily dragons fans. What can you tell them about what they can get from Scoop that can encourage them to go pick up the novel? Because it is a really good read. I really enjoyed it. And I know my co-host did too. Thank you. Um, thank you guys for picking it up and for the kind words. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think um, for me, Sophie kind of has like some of the best aspects of Hiccup and Astrid. Um, she's very determined and very resolute, like Astrid. Um, she's also really smart and really inventive, like Hiccup. And whenever there's an obstacle in her way, she refuses to cave into it, a la Astrid, and then thinks up usually a pretty clever way around it, um, a la Hiccup. Also, Sophie has a really bratty younger brother named Kit, who's, I think, nine years old. And he is a um, kind of like a prodigy inventor as a kid. And so he, he kind of invents all the spy gear for Sophie in the books. It's an ongoing series. The first volume is the only one that's out now, um, but it's all rooted in real science. So all the the gear that he makes to you know kind of help her in her investigations, it's all legit stuff that you could build at home. Um, but uh, that that's kind of it. And then I think you know like dragons is you know there's obviously an element of you know sort of fantasy and and wonder in. Um, in dragons in the world and in the creatures that inhabit it. And I'm trying to bring the same sense of wonder and whimsy to, um, you know, some of these sci-fi things that we see. It's, I, I, I wouldn't be content in just kind of showing the usual sci-fi tropes. I want to give them like a South Florida twist or see them in some new way that, that hopefully freshens them up a bit or just makes them like kind of a, a more unique presentation of them. And, um, you know, the, the sci-fi is kind of a slow burn in the first book, but in volume two and beyond, um, it's going to play a bigger and bigger um, part in Sophie's story and her growth as a, as a young person. And so um, we've got some pretty cool visuals um, lined up for it that will hopefully rival some of the stuff that we see in Dragons. And um, last and, and possibly most importantly, uh, no less than Dean Deblois has given it an endorsement, and you can find it on Twitter where he announced it and and gave there it his go. blessing. So, if it's good enough for Dean, <laughs> I think it's good enough for the rest of us. Absolutely, sounds good to me. Yeah. So, yeah, did you hear that? You did you hear that, that, Dragon fans? Not only did Dean like it, and of course we liked it, but Sophie is like the modern Hiccup Astrid child. So that. Right. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and then just on a, on a personal level, because I'm I'm a huge fan of Veronica Mars. I um, donated to the Kickstarter for the movie and all of that. So I just really wanted to ask, how excited are you for the new season? I um, I am so excited that when I saw Kristen Bell announce it, um, I stopped working 
and I woke up my wife who was taking a nap and I told her uh, <laughs> Veronica Mars is coming back on Hulu for eight episodes. And um, that, so yeah, I mean, it's no joke. I, I mean, we, you know, we, um, by the time we went to the Kickstarter to contribute to the film, it was already fully funded and then some, but we are for sure marshmallows. And um, it was like, that show came on when we were still dating and as we got married and it's like still to this day, my favorite TV show. Um, so I'm totally psyched. And also, um, Ashley Bradley, AC Bradley, who's one of the writers on Troll Hunters and who helped me on those books. She's a giant Veronica Mars fan too. So it's, it's definitely a touchstone that keeps coming back. Basically, anytime I mention Veronica Mars to somebody, they always say, I love that show. So, uh, you know, again, what's not to love? Well, I feel like anybody who, considers themselves a marshmallow should definitely pick up scoop I really felt like um like that kinship that Veronica and Sophie would probably have and I I love all of those uh dynamic intrepid girl detective characters so I was really really excited reading scoop and getting some more of that content cool you know you know you're a big fan of something oh sorry go ahead no 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 please go ahead I was just going to say, you know, you're a big fan of something when you can wake up your partner about it and they don't get really mad at you. Yeah, (laughs) that was one interruption. She didn't mind. It wasn't like the kids broke something. It was good for a change. So, yeah, no, we're we're totally stoked next year. Can't get here soon enough. And, you know, I think Rob Thomas just announced the writing staff for it and they are pretty stellar and um you know looks like a lot of the cast is coming back so we'll get to see logan and weevil and all these guys and yeah i'm I'm stoked yeah they did a great job with the movie so i'm i'm pretty pretty uh optimistic for the tv show uh we have a a few more questions for you about um sort of your creative process um so an anonymous user asked, what are the creative advantages in telling the stories that you're telling as graphic novels? Um, you already touched on that a little bit in terms of budget, but are there um, other creative advantages to that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, for, for sure. Like we said before, the fact that you're not limited by budget, that's a big one. Um, I also think, not something we've really explored yet in Dragons, but I want to, and it's thought balloons. Um, it is a convention that you can get away with in comics that you can't necessarily get away with in any other medium. And it's basically a really safe, sort of culturally accepted way to get into a character's thoughts. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's a, a huge advantage. We do that a little bit with like Hiccup's narration and Serpent's Air. And um, I guess we, there are some, some thought balloons. We do a little bit of it in the... Um, the free comic book day story that, that precedes dragon vine in this volume. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is, I think it's a really, the comics present this really cool opportunity in juxtaposing different images or juxtaposing dialogue with an image to, to give it a new meaning. So the example is, um, you know, hiccup, Hiccup's narration would say one thing like, you know, oh, being chief is, is great. You know, it's, the, uh, you know, the job I was born for. And then the artwork would show Burke in a shambles and Hiccup with his, you know, head down and kind of defeated in the moment. And this is a terrible example off the top of my head. But basically, when you take that narration and you take that image and you put it together, you, you realize that Hiccup is 
he's uh, lying. And maybe he's lying to his people to kind of motivate them and protect them so that they're not scared in the moment. And maybe he's lying to himself a little bit to get through this really difficult moment. Um, and so I think it's something that you can do especially well in comics where the reader has the opportunity to kind of pause on a panel and take in all that stuff. If we're just hearing an unreliable uh, narrator doing voiceover during a movie and images are going by, once they pass, we can't go back and see them again. But with comics, we can kind of keep going back and referencing it. And so comics are also really great for setting up plot points and then going back. And once we've seen how they play out, going back and seeing what was there all along. Kind of like, I think, Max, maybe you noticed the panel in Dragonvine where Bionis Tribe sneaks the um, Dragonvine pod into Toothless's saddle. That was yes. definitely, you, you got it just right. So that's kind of a cool thing that Dragon, uh, I'm sorry, that comic books do too. Yeah, absolutely. And then when you were working on Serpent's Air and Dragonvine, what, which of the dragon's characters were your favorites to write? Oh boy. I know it's tough. <laughs> that is that is a tough. That is You can a have tough more than one. one. Yeah, honestly, it really is all of them. Um I uh I mean, you know, I'll say it's kind of I like Hiccup in in Dragons obviously and Jin and Trollhunters for many reasons, but one of them is something they have in common is that for hero characters, they are really interesting and really compelling to me. And I, I think to most people, um, you know, a lot of times your kind of main hero character is kind of the most boring character. Like they kind of have to be so many things to so many people. They kind of can't really make any mistakes. They kind of can't take on any really, um, uh, they can't really be a devil's advocate. They can't really take on a, a provocative point of view at risk of alienating some of the audience. But I find that with Hiccup and with Jim and Trollhunters, they make choices, they make mistakes all the time, and they learn from them. And I love that. I mean, I think that's a really fun character to be able to write. But I also think that, you know, for for younger fans of these properties who are out there, seeing these characters that they look up to make a mistake and own up to it and then try and fix it, that's kind of a great life lesson. I, I think a lot of our, you know, society is is about being perfect all the time and perfection and never making mistakes. And to make the mistake is some sort of weakness or flaw or fault. And um, you know, I think it's quite the opposite. I think that's how we learn. So um, to get down off my soapbox, that's you know that that's why I love writing um, Hiccup. But I think you know when you're writing a character like Hiccup or Astrid who are a little more earnest and then to be able to follow that up with some obnoxious comment by Snotlout or something totally random and bizarre from the twins it's just kind of like a really fun one two punch um with these characters so i'm just going to say all of them how's that yeah i really did enjoy um when going through dragonvine um i really got even though you talked about earlier you can't fit every character into every panel i still really felt the group rapport was was so on point um it's almost like uh like coming back to a group of friends you haven't seen in a long time and everything's just the way you remember it so oh well thank you i take that as a as a job well done and um you know that that was definitely done by choice we split up the group so that the artist wouldn't have to draw so many people on the page at one time for these pages you can just focus on eric's team for these pages you could focus on pick up an astrid and gobber and then to have Valka and fish legs go back to um 
to Burke and to kind of see that as it's being rebuilt is kind of a nice way to, you know, show how, how things are progressing on Burke, but also to give them a little moment because we don't really see them interact that much in Dragon 2. It's a good problem to have that we have so many complex, well-written, interesting characters that you kind of have to split them up to give them all their own moments to shine in a way. I know, right? It's it's an embarrassment of riches. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, I just thought of one other thing. It's a really kind of minor thing, but one cool thing that you can do in comics that you can't do in regular animation, you can give the characters costume changes. And so that yeah. was by, you know, we kind of give Hiccup a new look in this book and sort of motivate his book in the third movie, but also like, it's just a little bit of variety. And, you know, if we get around to doing the fire tides, I think the characters will all start to take on some, some features in their appearance that more closely approximate their looks in the third movie. Um, that's how we could kind of get a lot of the kids in their bathing suits, in the hot tubs, in Serpent's Air. And, um, you know, it's also why we're hopefully going to get a shirtless hiccup in the fire tides. Well, listeners, you got to tweet at Dark Horse for that. Get to work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag if shirtless hiccup. hiccup. Do it, I don't know what will. Yeah. The next question is a question that was submitted by the user Full Time Viking. Um, is what advice would you give to a 16 year old who wants to maybe write their own graphic novel someday? Okay, yes. Um, I read this question. And the advice I would give um, is to take out the maybe and the someday and to just start doing it. Um, because it's, um, there's no time like the present to get started and kind of give yourself the permission that your first couple attempts at any story are not going to be good. They're going to suck. And, uh, I mean, I've been writing for, you know, I've been at this for close to two decades now and my first drafts still suck and that's okay. That's part of the process and just accept it and know that you necessarily have to go through that in order to get to the good stuff. So if you're 16 years old and you're starting now, you're, you're in better shape. You're in a, a, you've got a longer lead than a lot of most other writers out there. So if you start at 16 and start getting the bad stuff out of the way, by the time you're my age, you're going to be incredible kicking a lot of butt. So keep at it. And from a practical standpoint, I don't know if the 16 year old is just a writer or an artist or both. If you're both, you are already so far ahead of the game because the hardest part, if you're a writer, is to get an artist. And it's not just to find an artist who's, you know, a talented artist who can draw the things that you visualize in your head, but also one that you can have a good, um, good working uh, collaboration and creative relationship with. And, you know, that's kind of the other thing about comic book scripts that I didn't mention before. You know, unlike a, a film screenplay or a TV script, um, comic book scripts are really the best ones are just kind of a, a letter from the writer to the artist. And it's just the writer telling the artist in very clear detail, this is what what I'm picturing here and what do you think and making it like a dialogue. And you can include photo reference if you want or if you know that your artist prefers less instruction and likes a little more blue sky and to go in there and figure things out for herself or himself then you can give them that freedom to do it too. But um, if you're a writer, finding an artist is going to be your biggest hurdle. The good news is we're now living in a world where that's easier than ever. You know, you can go on social media, you can go on Twitter and you can search, you know, the HTDYD hashtag and find a bunch of incredible fan art out there by really talented people who are probably also into comic books like you. 
And if you like somebody's stuff, reach out to them and kind of take their temperature and see if they, you know, start a dialogue first, see if you guys can get along as people, and then see if you might be interested in collaborating on a project together. You know, you don't even have to necessarily print your books anymore. Um, Comixology, which is a, a digital comics app, it's kind of like the iTunes of comics. They have a program called Comixology Originals. So if you are an independent comic creator, you can just, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, they have two things. They have one called Comixology Submit. So if you're an independent creator like me, you can submit your the digital files of your books and they'll carry them on there and you can set the price point. And if they make money, you get a percentage of that. Um, and it's there for your audience. And then your challenge is just to get people to see it. They also have another thing called Comixology Originals, which is where you can submit your creator-owned comic book to them. They will carry, they will run the digital version of it. And through Amazon's on-demand printing um, services, they can also print physical copies of your comic and distribute it through Amazon. So none of those things were available when I was breaking into comics. You had to kind of print things offset, which is like the old-fashioned newspaper printing way, and print you know thousands of copies to, to make it cost-effective. And now you don't have to worry about that. So um, find an artist, come up with a story, and then, you know, get it out there digitally and then print a very small print run. You can either do that through Amazon or find your own print-on-demand service. You just Google it. There's a bunch of them out there that specialize in comics. It's not that expensive, and you can just print, you know, 100 at a time, 500 at a time. It won't take up too much space in your home or apartment. And, you know, hit conventions, tweet about it, message about it, and just spread the word. But the most important thing in all of this is to just keep doing it and and don't give up. And if your first comic doesn't turn out the way you want it to, join the club and um, just start <laughs> working on your next one. And it will definitely be better. And they'll, they'll, each one will just get better and better. It's the thing about writing and about drawing and about so many other disciplines. The more you do it, the better at it you become. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you for sharing that, especially coming from someone who, you know, you started answering phones at DreamWorks and now you've had your work all over one of their biggest franchises of all time. That's, that's incredible. Thank you. Thanks. No, no, thank you. I mean, there, uh, you know, luck also plays a part in it. I'm, I, I won't lie. You know, I've been very fortunate to be entrusted to work on these franchises and it's, you know, it, it is an honor for me and I take it really seriously it's kind of part of it is being at the right place at the right time. But, you know, like you, you also have to have the talent and the training for the timing to work out. So like when that opportunity comes, make sure that you are, are prepared and ready to go to, to seize it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, my next question is kind of not a personal one, but something we were all kind of wondering about. What is your ideal writing environment? So you're working on all these projects What's your setup? Do you have an office? Do you listen to music? Like, kind of yeah, what's your strategy I, um, here? I the, the way our house is configured, I don't have uh, an office, but we've converted our breakfast nook, what would be our breakfast nook, into my office. And um, it has a really nice corner window that looks out on the... Um, I can actually see the Griffith Observatory from here. I'm looking through it right now. And so I get up at five in the morning, every morning, maybe not on Sundays, but um, you know, most of the days of the week I do. And it's before my kids wake up and my wife wakes up and before you know, emails and calls start coming in. 
and because uh, I get so many emails and calls because I'm a big time comic book writer. But uh, no, I, I sit down here. It's very quiet and uh, peaceful. I make myself my coffee and I sit down and I just start writing. And I don't, I'm not one of those writers that can write with like music and stuff. I, I like it pretty quiet. That's why I get up at five in the morning before my kids are up and making noise. Um, but that's, I, I need to be by a window. Um, doesn't have to have a view of the Griffith Observatory, but, you know, some kind of window, some sort of aspect out to nature and nice um, quiet. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, we, we got totally lucky with that. And, um, you know, that that's it. And I think... You know, for a lot of those years where I was working at DreamWorks, I kind of had my day job as an assistant. And, you know, I, in the, I would get up early in the morning then to write, write on the weekends. And if you do that enough, I think what happens, at least for me, is that I don't, when I sit down at the keyboard now, I kind of don't dilly-dally anymore. Like, that wasn't a luxury I had back then. My kids were babies. And I had a day job, which was wonderful, but very demanding. And I just didn't have a lot of time to do my writing. So I just kind of, it was kind of like running sprints or drills. You just sit down and write as much as you could in an hour and then pick up where you left off the next day. And so now I can just kind of sit down and more or less, um, you know, will myself into start writing. And then if I hit a roadblock, I, I go take a walk or go to the gym or something. And, um, you know, usually the answer comes to me after a while. Well, thank you for sharing so much with us. Um, yeah, and it's cool to hear that you're part of the team. Wake up at five a.m. and get everything done because <laughs> so am I. God, I wish that was right. me. Well, all, all I can tell you guys is just keep at it. You know, that's all any of us can do. Thank you for all of the advice and the insight and the behind-the-scenes stuff that you shared with us. Um, it was incredible to talk to you about dragons and scoop and everything in between before we kind of wrap up here because i think you're going to be our longest episode ever thank you for that sorry um <laughs> no oh my gosh um thank you do you have a message or anything you'd like to say to the dragon fans out there who have you know been with these characters since the beginning and have read your graphic novels and you know have loved it as much as you do uh, yes, I, I definitely do. Uh, I, it's really just a very sincere thank you for um, making a, a dream come true for this comic book fan. Um, you know, my whole life, I've always wanted to write comics. Um, and then, you know, like I said a few years ago, that, that dream became even more kind of fully crystallized in my head. And it was that I wanted to write dragon comics. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to get the opportunity, but the fans have, have shown up and supported the, the books, whether it's the comics or the app or the TV show or, you know, some of the other things I've written for Dragons. Um, it's, it's a really wonderful feeling. And now to be able to go to the conventions and, and, you know, meet the fans and talk with them and, you know, see what an impact it's made on them. Um, I'm completely sincere in saying that that also makes an impact on, on me. And I think all the creators, and the dragon franchise, you know, we, it's a labor of love. It's a job, but we do it gladly. And we do it in the hope that it's going to connect with, with fans and, and mean something to them and be a source of entertainment, but also, you know, a source of, of comfort in, in, you know, downtimes in your life and a, a source of joy when you're feeling really great about things too. So, um, you know, thank you for, for not just supporting the, you know, the comics I write, but, just everything with the dragon franchise. It's, it's a beautiful story that 
that Cressida originated and that Dean kind of took and made his own. It's got a lot of heart. It's got really wonderful messages that I love, you know, espousing to my own kids. And I love seeing other families, um, you know, share with each other as well. So, um, yes, a very long-winded, but a very heartfelt thank you. And thank you again for coming on our show. We appreciate it so much. Where can our listeners find you on social media if they say, want to suggest a name for a tribe or just hit you up and say hi? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm on Facebook, uh, Richard Ashley Hamilton. Um, that's maybe why you had a little bit of trouble finding some of my stuff on Amazon, Max, is that some of it is attributed to Richard Hamilton, but there's a lot of authors named Richard Hamilton out there. So I go by the full name, Richard Ashley Hamilton for disambiguation. Yeah, I saw so some stuff that is like, this probably isn't, not this... But I got it. Yeah, no, there's stuff about like ancient English history that's definitely not me. Anything about dragons or trolls or team detectives or you know, that, that's that's my vibe, right? Uh, so uh, I'm on Facebook there. On Twitter, I'm at Regards Richard, uh, all you know, one word. Um, and you can also follow Sophie Cooper, the main character of Scoop. She's on Twitter at Scoop underscore Intern. Uh, and then I'm going to be, I'm not sure when this episode drops, I'm going to be at New York, um, Comic-Con, um, October 5th and 6th and maybe the 7th. And, um, I'll be doing some signings at Insight Comics to support Scoop. Um, but I'm also going to be doing signings and some press at Dark Horse to support, um, Dragonvine and also the, the new Trollhunters graphic novel that comes out soon called The Feld, which I wrote. Um, so if any Dragon fans are in the um, Big Apple and at the show and want to come say hi, please do. I'd love to meet you guys in person and talk Dragons. I'll be there. Maybe. Maybe I'll be there. All right. Well, they, they, perfect. They denied my press pass, so I don't know about that. <laughs> what? Yeah, I know. It's so sad. You gotta I, take here a I was. out of Sophie Cooper's book, man. I know. I just yeah. gotta sneak in. <laughs> They'll be looking for you. Uh, I, I smell a, a scheme forming there. <laughs> He's uh, always yeah. got a scheme. Yeah. Always, yeah. Well, listeners, if you're at New York Comic Con, you know where to find him. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, guys. Thank you for inviting me onto um, your podcast. Keep up the great work. And uh, let's definitely do this again sometime. 